The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. This month, December 2013, we're going to be speaking with Courtney Bruce and Jenny Blumenthal-Barbie, who are co-authors, among others, of the article Cascade Effects in Critical Care Medicine, A Call for Practice Changes, that appears in the December 15, 2013 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Courtney Bruce is an assistant professor of medicine and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy. In this capacity, she is the director of the Houston Methodist Hospital's bioethics program. In addition to having a law degree, a certification in mediation, and a master's degree in bioethics, Professor Bruce also completed a two-year clinical ethics fellowship at Cleveland Clinic prior to joining the center. Her scholarly work has been published in law journals, bioethics journals, and medical journals, including CHEST, Annals of Thoracic Surgery, Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery, and the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Jenny Blumenthal-Barbie is an assistant professor of bioethics in the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy with an adjunct appointment at Rice University. She received her PhD in philosophy with a specialization in bioethics from Michigan State University in 2008. Her research focuses on the ethical and practical questions raised by research on human judgment and decision-making. She has received funding for her conceptual work from a Greenwall Foundation Faculty Scholars Award and is a co-investigator on an NIH-funded study to investigate decision-making in the clinical integration of whole genome sequencing and is principal investigator on a PCORI award to develop a patient decision aid for ventricular assist device placement. Thank you both for joining me. So my first question to Ms. Bruce is, could you please describe cascade effects and give a couple of clinically relevant examples of a series of cascade events in pulmonary or critical care medicine? Cascade effect is really a progression, uh, a snowballing. Uh, it's a term that it's actually from decision psychology where you start with a trigger, maybe a certain prognosis, maybe a certain intervention is placed, and then it just becomes a series of progressive escalations until it sort of snowballs to a point where the person may not even recognize that it's been triggered, and it becomes a little bit uncontrollable or unmanageable until the case resolves. So a couple of clinical examples. Our ethics consultation service was recently consulted by a physician who expressed concern that the many patients she saw with profound neurological injuries are part of what she described as a train. She referred to a series where the patient is on TPN, then with an NG tube, then to a PEG tube. Or a series where the patient is on BiPAP, then on mechanical ventilation, and then has a tracheostomy. So with each procedure and each intervention, there's an increase in intensity and aggressiveness. She described these series of interventions like being a cog in an assembly line, a train that won't stop, one where the family and patient can't get off because they don't know when to get off. Another clinical example is a little more specific. 
So I think cascade effects, I think, they may be most prominent in cardiovascular critical care medicine because many mechanical circulatory support devices are placed as bridge therapies. The purpose of device placement may be uncertain at the time it's placed and may shift after it's placed. This movement or series of incremental movements may make it very hard to break chains without deliberate action to break the momentum. So those are examples of cascade effects. Thanks. Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie, in the article, you make reference to a set of reflexive escalations to next-step therapies that place significant demands on ICU or discharge resources. And I wonder, what do you think uh, underlies this phenomenon of proceeding from one step to the other in a series of cascade effects? How does that result from what you term reflexive escalations? Thanks. Well, first, it's important to recognize that I think in critical care medicine especially, there's always an easy and natural flow to the next step therapy. And it's easy because stopping is really difficult because often in critical care medicine, stopping means loss of life. And second, we know from decision psychology that people hate losses much worse than they would value gains of the same magnitude. Decision psychologists refer to this as, quote, loss aversion bias. And third, we also know that people view harms from commission, such as actively stopping something, as worse than harms from omission, i.e. letting something continue through inaction. So these, I think, are some of the phenomena um, from decision psychology that help explain the sort of notion of reflexive escalations that are found in cascade effects that we talk about in the article. Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie, I want to follow up on something that you just mentioned. You mentioned the term loss aversion which comes out of the behavioral economics or cognitive psychology uh, literature, and it describes this idea that uh, a person who has something often assigns a greater value to it maybe than the actual utility that object has. And I think that uh, in my experience as a critical care physician, we often unwittingly play into this idea of loss aversion because we're often, as you mentioned, talking about stopping things. A great example is the way we talk about trying to establish do not resuscitate orders, where we're talking about things that we're not going to do or things that we're going to take away from a, a patient or another individual. And I think that maybe our community, our community of physicians, nurses, and practitioners ought to think perhaps about rephrasing this in terms of what are we giving to somebody rather than what we're taking away, such as the opportunity to spend quality time with family, perhaps in a home hospice situation or something like that. I wonder if you could uh, comment on, on my observations. I think that's right on. It's in line with sort of the literature that's been coming out of the fields of decision psychology and behavioral economics for several decades now this message that the framing of things is really important and you can choose to frame things in terms of loss or gain and that framing has significant impact on people's decisions. There's a really interesting study, for example, it's not in critical care medicine, but the researchers provided women with sort of description of why it's important to get mammography screening. And for some of the women, they framed it in terms of like what you're losing if you don't get the screening and for other women, they framed it in terms of, like, what you're gaining if you do get the screening. And they saw significant differences in those two groups of people of who actually went and got the mammography. So 
I think it is really important. I think this is sort of a really good um, marriage between critical care medicine and decision psychology to sort of think harder about what we can learn from decision psychology and how we can take that into critical care medicine and improve communication and decision-making. So, Ms. Bruce, along those lines, in your article, you and your coworkers suggest that mapping trajectories is an important component of trying to avoid some of these snowballs that are rolling downhill uh, with a lot of momentum. I think one practical barrier to this is that physicians are often uncomfortable giving prognosis, especially when the prognosis is not a good one. I think this is true of critical care physicians. It also, I think, is, is true, for example, of doctors and nurses involved, say, in cancer care, where there's a natural momentum to, well, let's, we're failing the first round of chemo, so let's go to the second or let's go to the third, even though the chances of meaningful responses seems to get smaller with each round of chemotherapy. So how do you suggest that we start to talk about prognosis and mapping trajectories? Well, in some ways, mapping out trajectories is not giving a particular patient's prognosis, and I think the physician should be comforted by that fact. Rather, it's saying this is the best-case scenario, this is the worst-case scenario, and this is the most likely scenario for a patient in this defined patient population. Mapping out trajectories consists of preparing families for possible outcomes, while not actually specifying what this particular outcome will be for this particular patient. So if you think about it this way and frame it this way, the gap really shouldn't be as steep as one might make it out to be. And I hope and I think that physicians should take comfort in mapping out trajectories. So, Ms. Bruce, as a follow-up, I'm going to use this analogy of mapping a little bit more. And and you and your co-authors advocate using decision points along the route, you know, let's say it's along the train route, as a potential way to halt cascade events. And I wonder if you can provide us with some specific examples or a clinical case that illustrates the concept of using particular stops or particular points along a route to slow down the cascade event process. Yes, absolutely. Decision points are periods in time where you really have an idea what the outcome will be. You consider how long the particular therapy has been used, what the underlying pathophysiology is, and you have an idea of where the patient is headed. So, for example, take a patient with lung dysfunction who's been on ECMO for two weeks or maybe mechanical ventilation for two weeks. At this period of time, you probably have a pretty good idea of what lung recovery will be like and whether continued therapy or escalations to another therapy, maybe tracheostomy, will be needed. There should automatically be a family meeting during this period of time. Now, whether that family meeting should focus on end-of-life discussions, that really should be a determination made by the particular clinical team, and it will, I think, depend um, pretty heavily on the facts of the case. But there should be discussion with the family where you literally sit down, talk with them about where things stand, and what should be anticipated and maybe what shouldn't be anticipated moving forward. As a follow-up, you know, I'll comment that, uh, you know, here is a great example of how mapping trajectories can influence these kinds of conversations. I mean, I think in the last 10 or 15 years, folks like Shannon Carson and Judy Nelson, as well as many others, have done a great deal of work in describing the natural history of what we now call chronic critical illness and understanding what trajectories different groups of patients who fit that diagnosis are going to follow will help us inform 
families and patients about what they can expect at each decision point. Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie, when we have these family meetings, I think there's often embedded in those family meetings discussions about advanced directives and conversations whose objective is to elucidate goals of care. And you advocate for using these conversations as another way to break cascade events. I wonder if you can help us understand how we can balance the use of surrogate decision makers whose knowledge of individual preferences is uncertain or who actually may have interests that don't align with the patient's value. How do we reconcile that in a practical way? Well, we believe that elucidating and documenting the patient's goals of care early and often can not only break cascade effects, but it's also a way to avoid the known problems with surrogate decision-making that you just mentioned. So one of our recommendations is before the patient becomes incapacitated to do this sort of elucidating and documenting on a regular basis. So this practice is really ethically important because it sort of avoids problems with surrogate decision-making and helps to break cascade effects. Now, of course, once the surrogates are involved in the mix, then we hope that some of the other recommendations that we made in the piece will become important and useful to help break cascade effects. And one of these includes the mapping of trajectories with the surrogates that Professor Bruce just discussed. And the other recommendation that we make is sort of managing expectations with the surrogates by changing defaults towards non-escalation. Instead of making the default sort of escalating to the next aggressive event, the default can be non-escalation, and then we can intervene and change it if it's necessary. So we hope that some of those recommendations are going to be helpful in sort of helping slow down the train with the surrogate decision-making as well. So, Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie, I catch you using another catchphrase from the behavioral economics literature, which is the idea of using defaults as a way to frame decision-making. So this is really right out of the, you know, the sort of school of thought that says that we should use nudges to help move people in the direction of default decisions that are better for them rather than asking them to choose from an open-ended menu. So can you give us an example of how we can set some defaults that will stop cascade events? Absolutely. So, I mean, first I think the important thing to note about defaults from an ethical point of view is that you have to set a default either way. So it's sort of like when you're mapping the trajectories that Professor Bruce just talked about, are you sort of setting the default trajectory to be escalation to the next step, or are you setting the default to be non-escalation, but if something changes, then we could move to escalate towards the next step? So I think it's really important people, you know, when they talk about nudging and, and all these things, there's often sort of ethical concerns about a default pushing patients in a particular direction, but we're inevitably sort of setting defaults and engaging in choice architecture um, when we are setting up these decisions for patients. So I think that that's really important. And I think that the things that we've talked about in the article of making sure that the choice architecture is one that sort of clearly maps out the trajectories and makes it the case that the default is maybe not resuscitation, and then you ask people to articulate why they would want resuscitation or why that would be important to them. Those, I think, are practices that can be integrated that can help change the defaults from ones that might lend themselves towards instigating cascade effects. This is Professor Bruce. I would like to respond to that. Jenny brought a point up about nudging, and she said sometimes there has been this ethical presumption that a patient or, or maybe a surrogate is expressing autonomy 
whenever the patient makes a decision that's completely devoid of physician influence. And I think Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie would agree that that misunderstands the ethical principle of autonomy. Autonomy doesn't say we should avoid influencing choice, and as Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie noted, there's going to be a default either way. Rather, what autonomy tells us is to avoid restricting the choice, and that's the reason why she emphasized the importance of mapping out the different trajectories and maybe the different options as well. So nudging, although it has a very negative connotation sometimes, I think it is inherent, and I think Dr. Blumenthal-Barbie, who does a lot of work in this area, far more work in this area than I do, would agree that nudging is going to be to some degree inevitable and defaults are automatically set, so it should be maybe reconsidered or reframed in that respect. Today I spoke with Professor Courtney Bruce and Professor Jenny Lumenthal-Barbie, who are both medical ethicists and co-authors on the article, Cascade Effects in Critical Care Medicine, A Call for Practice Changes, which appears in the December 15, 2013 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We talked a little bit about how medical decisions often have a snowballing effect in some real-world ideas on how we can stop this often seemingly unstoppable chain of events. From all of us at Blue Journal Podcasts, I'd like to thank you for listening and wish everybody a wonderful 2014.